David Holt became mayor of Oklahoma City in 2018, voted in with 78% of the vote. Before taking office, he served in the Oklahoma State Senate for eight years. And Brian Barnett has served as mayor of Rochester Hills, Michigan since 2006. He also serves as president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Today, they will discuss the challenges of serving as mayors during the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen in. So again, welcome to both mayors, and I'll stop talking, turn it over first to Mayor Holt, and then to Mayor Barnett. And thank you guys so much for joining us. So Mayor Holt. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Well, um, thank you for the opportunity. It's always an honor to uh, be here with Mayor Barnett as well. He is in his last few days as, as the president of all mayors, America's mayor, he likes to be called. So I get to say it one last time, probably. Um, and I'm really honored to be with this group. I mean, I jumped at this chance. I've heard uh, of your group and I think you're well named. It's a phrase that uh, I feel like I try to live by as a mayor here in Oklahoma City. Um, and to let me maybe begin by answering your question of how one gets elected with 78%, because I think it is directly on point uh, with no labels and really the way that mayors function in general. In our form of government here in Oklahoma City, we do not run as Republicans or Democrats. I served as a Republican in the state Senate. I served in the Bush administration. I've, I've, I've done lots of Republican stuff, so people know that. It's not a secret, but I did not run, you know, technically uh, with, the, with the R label after my name. And, I, and more importantly, I did not run in a closed partisan primary. So when I decided to run for mayor, I immediately embraced the nonpartisan nature of the mayor's office here in Oklahoma City. And I preached a platform uh, that was you know, focused on a broad range of, of priorities that would appeal, maybe not to either extreme, but would certainly appeal to what I've always believed is about the 70 to 80% of us who can get along and can find consensus in the middle of the ideological spectrum. Uh, and I courted Democrats and, and got, you know, endorsements from prominent Democrats as well as prominent Republicans. And ultimately, that's how you get 78%, something that is really only possible in our current political environment in a nonpartisan uh, election. Otherwise, people would have lined up and said, well, I'm a Democrat, I can't vote for him, you know, and, and, and you'd never be able to get 78% because we're not a 78% Republican city by any means. In fact, we're so purple we just recently in the last election elected our first Democrat to Congress in the, uh, you know, in 40 years. So we're a very purple city. Uh, and, and I have tried to, you know, find common purpose across this very diverse spectrum of, of political perspectives and, and ethnicities uh, and all the other things that, that can tear a community apart if you don't have leadership that's trying to bring us together. So um, it's been really important to me, especially, and it's proven very useful at a time that we're living in, to uh, try to find that common purpose and try to set aside the things uh, that divide us. And I truly believe, and, I, and, I, it's, and this is the audience I want to say this to, and I've been saying it, though, here in Oklahoma for many years, that if you could replicate the, the process by which people are elected for many of our cities, uh, at the state and federal levels of government, and certainly at the you know the presidential level, uh, you would have such different outcomes because the people that are frustrating so many of us at these other levels of government are largely doing it because they ultimately have they know that their next election they have to first answer to a smaller subset of the electorate, whether it be 
in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And I, and I think Mayor Barnett, I'm not, I think this is the system he has as well in Rochester Hills, we know that our next election, we will answer to the entire electorate. And so we have the comfort of being able to build a coalition uh, that might include people who are registered Democrats and might include people who are registered independents. And we do not have to, we can sort of write off the extremists uh, at either end of the spectrum because that's not the way we're elected. Um, and so I have preached for a long time that the ultimate solution to so many of our challenges here in this country is how we elect people. And if you could have a system, and some people call it open primaries. I mean, I don't know what you want to call it. And sometimes the phrases turn people off. But if you have a system where all the candidates are forced to face, in my case, I think, get to face or allowed to face all of the voters, um, they prioritize things differently, they message things differently, and they ultimately become different public servants than those who are forced to go through a closed partisan primary process before they face uh, the entire electorate. So that aside, I wanted to get that out of the way and thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. I'll give a real quick update on kind of our COVID-19 situation and maybe also uh, how we've handled the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. And then I'd love to take questions after Brian speaks for no more than 30 or 45 seconds. So, um, First, we were very late uh, into the pandemic situation. Our first case of local spread here in Oklahoma City uh, was on March 15th. And so that was really good for us because we got the opportunity to see what was happening on the coast. And we got to know that this was a serious issue. And, and so I declared an emergency in Oklahoma City on that very same day of March 15th. And two days later is when I took the step that many people saw happening around the country, which was closing restaurant dining rooms, closing bars, closing gyms, you know, some of those places where the spread was most likely to happen. Um, a week later after that, our governor got involved and he closed non-essential businesses here in Oklahoma. Um, and that was most welcome. But I will say that, um, you know, what I have learned, I'm, I'm an amateur epidemiologist like everybody else on this, on this Zoom call now, I'm sure. And, you know, what I've learned is what you do in the first week of the pandemic is probably way more important than what you do in the ninth or the 10th week, you know. And so I'm glad that we moved quickly uh, and it seemed like it kept the cases low. It kept the deaths relatively low in our community. Um, after the governor jumped on closing the non-essential businesses, you know, at about the 10th day of the pandemic here in Oklahoma City, um, we kind of analyzed it. He was really uh, militant about saying the words shelter in place. Uh, and we found that this is when I first learned the lesson that what we say and how we communicate things is actually probably a lot more important in this pandemic than what is written in the proclamations because nobody reads those anyways. And we found that people really needed to hear their leaders say shelter in place. That was the, the language they had grown familiar with. It was kind of the magic words. And so by that following Saturday, we, we sheltered in place in Oklahoma City. And I did that in coordination with the mayor of Tulsa. Oklahoma City and Tulsa metro areas represent about two thirds of the population of Oklahoma. And early on, we realized, even though we're 90 minutes apart, that if we weren't coordinating, it would, if nothing else, put the other one into uh, uncomfortable situations. And so we, we started pretty early on to coordinate our actions. Uh, and we did that on that day uh, back in March, and we sheltered in place, both of our cities at the same time on the same day. And we preserved that all the way through April. Now, 
At that point, the governor lifted all of his restrictions at the end of April. And though we still have the legal right in Oklahoma to maintain ours, it became awkward at that point because the suburbs were not going to follow us at that point. They were getting tired of it. I understand that. I mean, I, I gave a speech in late April where, you know, I, I expressed all these conflicting emotions that, you know, this is a very deadly virus. We're very worried about it. But at the same time, we understand you can't shelter in place forever. But, you know, let's move forward with what the governor has decided to do, but try to put as many restrictions on these high risk activities to make it as safe as possible. And so that's what we did on May 1st. And actually it worked pretty well through the month of May. And then June, we've had an explosion of cases amongst young people. So it's a twist. Every chapter of this story has been different. Now we have way more cases than we ever had at the original height of this pandemic back in March and April, but we have a fraction of the deaths. We've only had uh, maybe three people die in the Oklahoma City metro, a city of 1.4 million. We've maybe only had about three people die in the last uh, two weeks. And, you know, at the height of this, we were having 18 people die in a week, 14 people die in a week. That was kind of what it was for several weeks in a row in March and April. So, um, you know, it's we, we attribute that largely to the fact that um, the cases are now mostly among young people. And so we're kind of torn on what to do. But here in Oklahoma City, our cases have started to decline. And now we have a, actually, as of today, we have a seven-day downward trajectory. That's not what you're going to see in the headlines because the state cases are significantly growing because largely in Tulsa, they are still spiking in their cases. Um, but our hospitalizations are manageable. Our deaths are very low. And we're just kind of monitoring it and trying to figure out the best path forward. Also recognizing this is a very long journey uh, of two years. And I'm happy to get in, drill down in anything here in a minute if you want to about the pandemic response here. I'd also say, obviously, we experienced the same civil unrest and, um, you know, that, that everybody did. We had a couple of nights early on where we did have, for us, it was significant violence and damage. For any other city, it would not necessarily have meant much. It only happened over an area of a couple blocks. Um, but, you know, a couple of police cars burned, some windows broken out, you know, that sort of thing happened. And again, for us, that was pretty extraordinary. And, and as a community, we were pretty stressed about it. But um, you know, I took the tack of really listening. Um, I met with Black Lives Matter leadership on maybe the fourth day uh, of everything. And then I went down to the protest late at night, uh, got on the bullhorn. You know, I lifted our moratorium and I stood, uh, not our moratorium, our, our curfew. And I stood there for three hours and listened. And it felt like from that point forward, we had sort of de-escalated the tensions. And we're moving forward now. Uh, you know, I think every mayor in America came out with sort of their to-do list out of that that week. And ours was to look at our de-escalation policy, to look at um, our citizen advisory board. We have a very weak accountability mechanism in place that that is a bit of an outlier now amongst large cities. And we want to look, re-examine that. Uh, we're also having a task force to bring back a human rights commission, which we uh, abolished in Oklahoma City 25 years ago. But again, we're a bit of an outlier in not having one. Um, and we're also looking at some ways to invest dollars in things that would, uh, you know, reimagine public safety a little bit. I mean, I think we're having a lot of tough conversations about law enforcement, but they need to occur. And then obviously also from a bigger picture, you just see, especially in our community, the white community talking about issues of, um, you know, representation and government equity and spending and economic development and economic opportunity 
in a whole new way. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I don't think that's a fad. I mean, I think we're finally putting those issues on the table. Uh, and I'm seeing people that you would never expect, um, you know, having those um, conversations and, and sharing views that they probably never expected themselves to have. So I think it's been very healthy all in all. And I've really tried to channel it and keep it positive um, throughout this and, you know, just called the, 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 the damage and the and the, the riots, a distraction engaged in by people who really weren't at the core of this movement and that we need to listen to these issues and not sideline them just because some anarchists, you know, took it off in a different direction, you know, after midnight. And I think we've been successful in that. And so that's kind of where we're at on that issue. Obviously, it's a lot. Mayors are exhausted. I, you know, Brian and I talk to them all the time and you've got mayors across the country who have had to basically manage at least three generational crises at the same time, if you include the economic fallout of COVID-19 in that. And, uh, and it's a lot, but we are, I, as I said earlier, elected by the whole public. And so I think we've been the most effective as a result in managing and responding to these crises because we're not pulled off trying to make score political points like governors and presidents have been. We're able to just do the work and try to chart the best course uh, forward for our cities. With that, I'll, I'll yield back to you or, or to Brian, and then we'd, again, we'd be happy to take questions. Thank you, Mary Holt. That's music to our ears. Um, uh, Major Barnett, you've got the floor. Yeah. Well, I want to thank uh, Mayor Holt for the 90 seconds he left me. Uh, appreciate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that literally is everything happening in Oklahoma City. There's literally yeah. nothing else happening in that entire entire city. You should know that uh, Mayor Holt and I are, are good friends. Our families are good friends. We've traveled across the world together. So it's always good to be with someone that you know, trust and respect. Uh, I like to give uh, Mayor Holt a little bit of a hard time. He only took 78% of the vote. Uh, I took 84% of the vote and I wasn't even on the ballot. I ran as a writing candidate. It was the second time that I ran as a writing candidate in my community. And it was the first candidate in the history of the state of Michigan to ever win uh, two elections by writing. But Mayor Holt, you, you're you're a good guy too. Uh, listen, uh, friends, this is a uh, this is a serious times. Um, if you think about this, these these layers of challenges that probably have never been more steep. Right, the the worst uh, pandemic in a hundred years, the worst economic recession in ninety, the worst civil unrest in fifty, and they all interact with one another incredibly. And by the way, if I might uh, stop myself and apologize, Nancy, thank you for uh, the work you've done in this organization. Uh, I am, like David, I'm familiar with it and appreciate your leadership. And Liz, thank you for the invitation to be with you today. Um, in my role as the president of the Conference of Mayors, it's, it's really been a dynamic year. Um, and I'm only saying dynamic because I can't use expletives. Uh, it's, it's been challenging um, because of the interaction of all of these, I mean, it's not like one crisis ended and then the next crisis started on Monday real neat and tidy such that we could then change the focus of our teams uh, to begin to deal with the next one. They are all uh, intricately connected and cause unique challenges, each, each unto themselves, and then together a whole set of additional challenges. Part of my job is to connect with mayors across the country. The United States Conference of Mayors is an organization that's the premier organization representing mayors started back in the Great Depression, started here in my neck of the woods in Detroit, 1932, in the throes of the Great Depression when mayors said, we're not getting enough attention. Local leadership needs to be recognized. We need to organize together and go to Washington and demand that more decisions be made locally uh, than they were seeing at the time. And for 
88 years, uh, we have worked really hard uh, to resemble something that you don't see in Washington. And that is a bipartisan organization uh, that really I see uh, in the back screens of some of your, your Zoom backgrounds, tries to put country, or in our case, cities, uh, over party. Um, I'm a Republican. Um, but most people probably might not know that based on if they were just to read some of the statements that I've made on behalf of the Conference of Mayors. I've been personally devastated to watch my friends go through gun violence. Um, I know Mayor Margo uh, in El Paso and had visited his town this year, Mayor Whaley in Dayton, uh, and walked uh, the, the Oregon corridor, Oregon district, uh, 24 hours after that shooting. Uh, I've talked to Mayor Peduto in Pittsburgh. I've talked to and toured the Pulse nightclub with Mayor Dyer in Orlando. I haven't had, by the grace of God, a, a mass shooting in Rochester Hills. But in my heart, I've had a, a dozen this past year because I know the mayors, Mayor Goodman in Los Angeles, talking about the shooting in Los Angeles. These are personal to me, and I'll stand up and take the cross uh, uh, to the hill because this uh, matters to all Americans in all cities. And it might not fit perfectly with Mary, maybe where party leadership is, but I don't care because party leadership doesn't see what's happening on the ground in my community. When I go to pick up my kids and I'm behind a hundred other minivans and, 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 and station wagons and SUVs in line. You know what people don't care about? Party leadership. You know what they do care about? Why does a crazy person get a gun? How does this happen? What can we do to stop this? How can we prevent this from happening in my community? And so we've been very active on, um, on background checks and, 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 and smart uh, uh, legislation reflective of that. We went to Congress the first day back. Uh, in session this year to ask for it. Of course, that's been sort of drowned out by the, the more recent uh, uh, challenges. But that's something that I think really spans. If you look at some of the polling, 90% uh, of Americans want to see background checks. 83% of Republicans, 78% of gun owners are okay with background checks. This is something we should be able to get done, uh, yet it's still held up, as Mayor Holt mentioned, by some of the folks on the outside extreme edges. That's one topic, but let me get back to, to, to some of the more germane topics of the day. Listen, COVID-19 is personal to me. I lost a relative, I lost a colleague, and I lost a friend. Three funerals I didn't get to attend in the last 90 days because of COVID. So this is something that, it, that matters to me, and if this isn't a, a ticker on CNN. Um, this is my friend, Mark. Um, this is my Aunt Dolores, uh, and this is my colleague, Mike. Uh, all three of these folks were lost to COVID. And so when we talk about our response, whether it be local, uh, regional, or national, um, I think what mayors are trying to do, first and foremost, is, is understand how we keep our people safe. You see, quickly, this has become a political challenge, a political story. Whether or not you wear a mask uh, at the grocery store uh, is a, a large indicator, as much as a bumper sticker, as to who you're voting for in the next election. Uh, and that's not the way it should be. Uh, you know, the health professionals of what we try, the, the health professionals are the folks that should lead uh, this discussion. What I did as leader of the Conference of Mayors was recognize that my job was to provide access and information. And so we rallied every Tuesday with important links to information about what was happening. We brought mayors in on a call every Friday. I'd have between 300 and 400 mayors uh, talking about what was happening in their cities and what we could do. Lots of best practices, because guess what? No one's ever done this before and absolutely zero mayors in America have ever run on a platform saying, I'm the best person to handle a pandemic. No one's ever done that. We're all learning this really together. And so getting information and creating access to people was really, really critical. And then as things related and uh, things evolved and turned 
uh, quickly, and, I'll, and I want to get to questions too, um, and turn into this, this idea and this challenge of, of systemic inequity in our cities. Um, again, it could be easy to say this is something that doesn't happen in Rochester Hills or, or in, in communities like mine, but it absolutely does. Uh, the systemic component of this requires a white dad to sit down and talk with his white kids about what's happening on the news every night. Even if they don't see what's happening in our city, uh, I want them to understand what's happening with my friends and colleagues across the country. Uh, I asked the mayor of Chicago, a good friend of mine, Mayor Lightfoot, uh, Mayor Cranley of Cincinnati, uh, and Mayor Castor of Tampa uh, a month ago to set up a committee on police reform and social uh, injustice. And yesterday, we reported out in a, a press conference, uh, a national press conference, the results put forward six principles uh, that we felt were key to trying to de-escalate, uh, to try and put in together some reporting and to try to put together some training on tangible things, they, some, 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 some uh, tangible roadmaps that municipalities can use all across the country to try to handle some of these things that are, uh, that are happening in our streets and with our police departments. It's a much bigger issue. And Glenn, I'll close by just saying this. I, I'm extremely optimistic, incredibly optimistic about one thing in America, and that is local leadership. I think if you watch Fox or CNN or MSNBC, whatever your, your, or, or whatever place you get your news from, um, I'm always proud when I see mayors because I see them leading not with partisan politics, but generally with how they protect and, uh, and provide for their communities. We share a tremendous passionate bond about how to be the best local leaders we can. We are closest to the people, have nowhere to hide. Everyone in my city who votes for me could be in my office in no more than seven minutes, right? I'm right in the center of town. That's incredible accountability that doesn't exist in Washington, which requires us to respond differently to the problems and not necessarily retreat back to partisan corners. So I'm incredibly high on mayors. I believe cities are where the action is. Mayors are where the uh, the, 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 the solutions are going to come from, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions and correct things that Mayor Holt says moving forward. Thank you, Mayor Barnett. Um, um, before we get to Q&A, we want to recognize Representative Torres Small from New Mexico and, um, and offer Representative Small, it was part of the caucus, uh, her, if she has a question or just comments on the proceedings so far. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I always enjoy these conversations and really learning from the robust dialogue. Uh, I really appreciated hearing from both mayors, although I disagree we're doing hard bipartisan work in Congress as well. It is an uphill battle, but uh, we are finding ways to make it happen. And uh, really appreciated Mayor Holt's comments about Kendra Horn, she's a good colleague of mine, uh, and I'm proud that we're finding ways to work together uh, to get things done. So, you know, I think we've, we've got, a, love to ask the mayors, especially given the work that's being done um, to fight COVID-19 and the economic impact that's, that's had on your communities. Um, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of our local small businesses trying to make sure they have the support to get through uh, the the remedies that were taken to try to avoid the spread of COVID-19. Really appreciated hearing your efforts to uh, try to keep people safe. And now as we find responsible ways to reopen, uh, what do you need in terms of support from the federal government? And uh, I'm hoping you're gonna talk about the need for uh, state and local support and how we can get that done in Congress in a bipartisan manner, as opposed to uh, a wish list from either side. So mayors, you coordinate yourselves, whoever goes first. I defer to the president. <laughs> uh, thank you. And, and it's always good to know your audience. Uh, 
Uh, always nice to know that there's a, a, a U.S. <laughs> rep on after you uh, you take a couple shots at Washington. Representative Small, uh, thank you for being on the call. I come from a district of uh, Representative Haley Stevens and Representative Alyssa Slotkin. Uh, Haley Stevens lives in Rochester Hills and uh, two, two great friends and two great representatives. You know, I think there is, um, you know, oftentimes uh, some frustration because at the local level we have to there are certain things that we have to do and without knowing your background representative, I don't know if you served at the local level, but we understand the complexities at the congressional level too, certainly. I would share with you that Mayor Holt and I are going to have very, very different answers to your question because uh, Mayor Holt leads a city that has a population over 500,000. And so CARES4 sent money directly to Oklahoma City. Um, my city, uh, like 97% of the cities not included in CARES4, hasn't received any federal funds um, from anything to date. So how has this impacted our city? Well, we've had a tremendous amount of expenses from PPE to retrofitting our building to get it ready to receive the public again, to hazard pay, uh, to increased cleanings, to training, to all those sorts of things that have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on one side. The other side is the incredible amount of lost revenue that dried up in a heartbeat. I give an example, it's not gonna seem like a lot, but sometimes people go to these other things. You know, we, we have a, a tremendous parks program. And because we didn't have uh, one soccer league in April, we lost a quarter of a million dollars, but we still had all of these structural expenses, right? So, so that's a small example, but it just to provide some color to the fact that we've had increased expenses and decreased revenues and no help from Washington yet. And so if there's frustration, it's because we're 120 days into paying these things and haven't been able to receive any kind of remuneration or, or, or really any kind of hope. We know uh, Leader McConnell's talked about maybe something in July. Our thought is it's July or bust. Um, and that's why there's some frustration. So for except for the top 38 cities in the country, we haven't seen anything. Mayor Holt? And just really quick on that, uh, you know that uh, Haley Stevens has been the one fighting for, uh, even before we passed the CARES Act, getting that getting money to cities smaller than 500000 That was uh, her main question, and I was glad to join that as well. Go ahead, Mayor Holt. Uh, she, she, uh, she had me, I think I was the only Republican to address the Democratic Freshman Caucus uh, about three weeks ago. She also had me testifying before the Congressional Committee, led by uh, Congressman Clyburn. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, which uh, was an interesting uh, experience. But uh, uh, yes, uh, Haley's a good friend and, and thank you for your leadership there. Mayor Holt. Thank you and thank you, Congresswoman, for your service and for joining us today. Um, so yeah, as Mayor Barnett said, we got $114 million directly to the city of Oklahoma City. However, you know, it was expressly stated that we can't spend that on the greatest need that we have, which has been our revenue shortfalls due to the economic fallout of COVID-19. Uh, it's most welcome, and we, we've been working to put it to good use. We can use, we've set aside about 30 million of it for a testing and tracing program. We've set aside um, about 25 million so far for sort of individual and small business support. So things that are supplementing some stuff that the federal government is doing. We created our own small business uh, continuity program where we were able to give, um, you know, grants and loans to, to small businesses that may work in tandem with other things they got from the federal government and maybe the only thing that they've got. But it seems to have helped a lot. I mean, I, I don't see, even though, you know, our unemployment soared just like everybody else's, I don't see, you know, empty storefronts all over Oklahoma City yet. Now, that may, that day may still come, and so we have to stay vigilant on it. But so far, I think 
that between the federal government's activities and, and local support and state efforts, you know, that we've managed to stave off, um, you know, some of the, the, the fallout that was certainly possible. But, you know, again, once some of those programs run out, obviously we, we've got to reassess. Um, I would say, as she alluded to, and as, as Brian did as well, I mean, the, the greatest need uh, at the local level is uh, our revenue shortfalls. Here in Oklahoma City, in the state of Oklahoma, we um, are heavily dependent on sales tax. It's really our only revenue stream. And of course, that's the, that's the revenue stream that is hit hardest and fastest by what has happened uh, with COVID-19. So um, we have the money sitting in the bank. So for us, you know, maybe a resolution for these top 35 or so cities, maybe a resolution will be just untying our hands a little bit and letting us use the money that we already have on that purpose. Um, you know, we'll see how it all works out because there probably will have to be a bit of a nuanced solution since some of us already have money in the bank. We just can't use it on that. I, I am hopeful and optimistic, but as Brian said, I mean, it's got to happen soon or it's not going to be meaningful. So um, we we adopt our budget in June because our fiscal year starts on July 1st, and we did adopt a budget that makes cuts. Um, you know, we pride ourselves on having a pretty good surplus, uh, or I should say savings account, and so we were able to minimize it as much as possible. But, you know, we're still cutting our police department and our fire departments by 3% and the rest of our city by about 11% uh, just because of what's happened uh, with COVID-19. We entered the pandemic uh, with the number one lowest unemployment in the country here in Oklahoma City, among large cities. So we were in great shape in February, and now we're not so much. Um, so we would love to have that support. And again, in our case, and in the case of the other cities over 500,000, we already have the money. So it doesn't even cost the federal government uh, anything at this point for us. We would just be able to, to, we would like to be able to use the money we've already received for that purpose. But obviously there are hundreds of other cities um, that will need additional funds if they're going to try and meet those needs. So you, so you guys, oh, go and ahead. Just, so that just to make sure both mayors know their audience now, I did just see that uh, Congresswoman Horn joined as well. Oh, wow. Well, hello, Kendra. How are well, you? Well, hello, Dave. <laughs> How are you? I'm sorry I was running a little late. Uh, uh, Sochi and I were, were uh, texting and I was trying to jump off of some other calls. So I wanted to say hello and um, just glad that you're here and I'm sure I'll have more questions, but I agree. You just need to be able to use the money that you have. You need <laughs> yeah. um, Representative Horn, thank you for uh, joining in and just let us know when you're ready to ask a question. We'll give you the floor. Um, yeah. Okay. So on our list of questioners is Neil Modell, Carla Odell, Odell and Mike Prakab. And as the moderator, I'm going to use my discretion and ask the first question. Um, so, to start with something you said, Mayor Holt, and then maybe go to Mayor Barnett. Um, you said that there were, in terms of economic activity, your citizen base was really coming out and doing things they had never done before and understanding things they had not understood before. Can you elaborate on that and, and tell us what's going on in your city in terms of trying to equalize the situation? Mayor Holt. Yeah. You're talking about something, is that a, a comment Brian made, maybe? If no, I think you said it in terms of, of um, getting rid of the systemic inequality. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. I mean, what I have found in Oklahoma City, and we've got two Oklahoma Cityans on the line now, so I, I'll, uh, I'll also defer to Congresswoman Horn in case she feels I'm not characterizing this correctly, but... Um, 
you know, what I have found is you, you have, for lack of a better phrase, white Republicans of affluence saying things that um, I don't think they would have imagined themselves saying five years ago, maybe even two years ago, maybe even two months ago. And, and they're, they're, they're acknowledging, um, you know, the, the advantages essentially that, that, that many people have known them to have for a long time. I, what I tried to say at the very beginning of this was, you know, just because you did not consciously choose to live in an unjust world does not mean that you haven't benefited from it, you know? And facing that is like the crux of the whole thing, I think, you know, accepting that reality um, that in our city, growing up, this will mean nothing to anyone but Kendra, but growing up at Northwest 122nd in Rockwell means that you're going to have a far higher level of economic, educational attainment, as well as a longer lifespan than if you grow up at Northeast 23rd and Martin Luther King. And the difference is you're probably white in the first scenario. You're probably African-American in the second scenario. Uh, and you probably have, you know, you come from just a higher level of, uh, of, of affluence, uh, even if it's just middle class. And, you know, those advantages um, for a long time, I think the white community of Oklahoma City, and it's probably true around the country, has sort of patted themselves on the back and said, hey, we got rid of Jim Crow laws. Uh, isn't that wonderful? We got, you know, it, when people uh, uh, commit overt acts of racism, we shout them down in the public square. Isn't that so much better than the way it was in 1959? And, and all of that's true. But, you know, obviously the outcomes that we, uh, we aspired to in the 1960s are not happening. And I think we all have kind of known that, but I think 2020 is the year where we finally really talked about it. Uh, and those issues were thrown on the table. And I have seen people that I know have donated thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to pretty far, you know, pretty far right conservative Republican candidates over the last 20 years, saying things, um, you know, about giving opportunity and rethinking the way that power and uh, leadership is distributed in our city. Um, and, and I think it's, it's quite enlightening. It's actually gives you a lot of hope. I mean, it's been a tough few weeks, don't get me wrong, but, um, but getting through those uncomfortable and difficult conversations is I think the first step towards something that actually could be a really great outcome. And so uh, I think the polling I've seen at a national level supports everything I just said. You have a broad-based consensus of empathy and support for the issues being raised by Black Lives Matter. And in contrast to other um, issue, you know, events that happened in, in recent years, it's totally different. This is definitely a watershed moment in comparison to other police brutality incidents that had happened in previous years. It, it, this one captured the imagination of the public for some reason, and it has extended far beyond the issue of law enforcement, although that is definitely part of it. And as I alluded to earlier, that's an issue we're talking about in Oklahoma City. But what's more exciting about it and heartening is that people are going beyond that and also talking about the systemic issues that put people in those situations and how do we address those as well. Thank you, Mayor Burnett. Yeah. I think Mayor Holt gives a, a good response. There was a statistic that uh, was presented to us from Frank Luntz, the noted pollster, who said for the first time in history, uh, at least in his polling data, uh, support for Black Lives Matter is equal to the support that the police have nationally right now. Think about that for a minute. How much has changed? Uh, and he went back even three years and it was almost three to one, uh, the support that the police had 
over when you simply say the support for Black Lives Matter. Let me let me take a different response to a different track to, to your question, Glenn, if I might. Um, Mayor Hall talked about what a city can do and should be doing to address these issues of inequality, because certainly it doesn't take much to, to see that not only do they relate to uh, you know, issues that we see being played out now about police brutality, but quickly it's access to capital, it's access to education, it's access to housing. But I want to respectfully challenge the people that I see on the screen. From what I know about this organization, you are business leaders from across the country. And as I look at the diversity on this screen, uh, it looks like the diversity of the organization that I lead here in the city of Rochester Hills. We are largely white. And so what that meant to me when this issue is happening across our country is that I needed to do something that didn't exactly feel normal to me. I needed to make sure that we didn't feel, as Mayor Holt just identified, that we're doing something a little bit better uh, than we did a few years ago, and therefore we've reached the goal. Um, I sat down with my entire team, and we took a day off, and we went to the movie theater and watched The Hate You Give. If you haven't seen that movie, write that thing down, write that name down, The Hate You Give. And watch it with your senior leadership team, watch it with your kids, watch it with someone that you can talk about it with afterwards. Uh, it is a moving story um, about uh, a, a white officer killing a black student and, and what happens in a community from all the different angles. It's incredibly powerful. That we went through unconscious bias training. I recognize that my department, my, my city, I couldn't, um, I, I didn't want to defend the fact or or um, you know, apologize for the fact that we were a mostly white leadership team. But what I needed to do was recognize why and how we can make some steps to change that. And maybe there's some things you can do in your organization. We looked at where we were hiring, what we were requiring in order to be an employee here, all the different things that you as business leaders have probably considered best practices for many years. Obviously, if you're part of this group, you've achieved some level of success. And so certainly there's some validity to the processes that you have in place. But it was a soul-searching time for our community to stop and, and try to understand what was going on. We had a march um, just about two weeks ago in response to this, about six to 800 people organized by the youth of our community, the largest march in the history of our community, because it does matter what's happening in these other cities. It does matter to suburban communities like mine, and it does matter to the folks that you do business with, how you treat, how you operate, how you organize and how you, uh, how you operate as an organization. And I think Mayor Holt gave a great, like I said, response to how we do it as a, as a community. Um, and I just want to take a moment to say how we need to do it as business leaders, thought leaders, and just plain leaders in this country in 2020. So we have six questions. You guys are rock stars because you've got two representatives and a lot of questions. So questioners, please keep your questions short. Uh, Neil, go ahead, Neil Modell. <coughs> Thank you to the two mayors, the two representatives. I sincerely appreciate your taking the time to join the group. Uh, Mike, you know, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I have a slant because my daughter's a prosecuting attorney in Utah, and my father, who's passed away a long time ago, was a policeman. Um, I, 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 am, I am bothered by the treatment of the police. Certainly there are bad police, just like there's bad mayors, and in my business, bad insurance people. But it seems that there is little to no regard, and I'm in the Philadelphia area, for what the police are going through at this point in time. And I'd, I'd like any one of you to, to speak to whether you 
you feel that the support that they're getting, either from the, the, the local mayors in the cities that have had the most uh, violence, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, this this conversation, conversation could go on for an hour. Either one, you guys. Well, I'll start. I mean, I think, uh, I'm sure it's, and I'm sure people's experiences with this issue are gonna be different across the United States and every city is gonna have its own idiosyncrasies on this. And I haven't followed the news in every city. I'm, I'm familiar with your city, however. I'm married to a Philly girl and was married there at uh, uh, St. Mark's Church and party was at Union Leagues afterwards, uh, almost 20 years ago now. So uh, very familiar with Philadelphia. But um, yeah, I, I would just say, I'm sure I've faced the same struggle that all other mayors have. You want to listen and you want to, you know, you want to be empathetic to what you're hearing. Um, but what you're hearing is, is a lot of pain and, and a lot of criticism and sometimes not, you know, not issued in the most respectful fashion. Right. I mean, I stood, um, you know, as I said earlier, I stood out at that protest at, from about 9 p.m. to midnight uh, on the fourth day of our local protests. And I stood at the front of a, of a very large group who took turns getting on a bullhorn uh, and saying very hateful things about our police department, many of whom were standing about 20 feet behind me. And um, I was wearing a mask, so that helped keep my poker face, I suppose. But, um, you know, I mean, that's obviously a delicate balance. You want to, uh, what I have tried to say throughout this, at least in my community, is that I am going to love uh, the, the, the protesters, the peaceful protesters, and I'm going to love our, the men and women of our police department. And I am, there are no sides. We have to get away from that idea. We have, if we're ever going to coexist in this community, we've got to find common purpose. Um, that does maybe mean you go through a cathartic period of, of a little bit of, of, of uh, grievance articulation and that's okay. And, and I think, um, it's, but that can be hard if you're a member of the police department. You don't want to hear people say bad things about you for days on end. Um, and I don't necessarily like to hear it either, but, you know, I think, I think the only way through that was to listen and let it be said. And so um, what I would tell police officers and their leadership during that time period was, you know, it's best to just listen. You, you, you want to react, of course, but that's only going to escalate the situation um, in a sense, it's a microcosm of the whole of, of everything we're talking about. De-escalation was the was the word I think that we needed to emphasize during those those protests uh, on multiple levels, and that's what I tried to do. At the same time as you know, supporting my police officers and what they were doing in the moment, um, but at the same time acknowledging that there's some real pain here, and we've got to work through it, and and let's talk about changing policies. Um, and that's what we're doing. And but as we talk about changing those policies, let's not um, make it seem as if that means that we have bad people working at our police department. Maybe they just need different policies and maybe they just need a different culture um, that's that's been created by society and, and our rules and, and our own expectations. And, and maybe bad outcomes have not really been their fault as much as they've been all of our fault. You know, so. Um, I think that's the, the, the way I've tried to walk that line. I'm sure, I'm sure it's been imperfect. And I certainly spent a lot of time uh, fielding messages that week from police officer spouses, actually, was, was probably the most frequent conversation I had via, via social media and emails, trying to reassure them that we still supported them, we still believed in them, 
Um, but, um, but we also have to listen to these very real concerns. So I think it's just working through it day by day, muddling through as best we can uh, and, and being human about it is, is the way I've tried to approach it. Um, but you're right. I mean, we have to have police. We have to have, um, you know, a civil society. And, and I'm sure every city's handled that differently. And maybe the balance has been a little out of whack for some cities. But um, it's a it's a hard situation. And I, I don't I, I understand any mayor who's had to ha who's tried to handle it, however, they've tried to handle it, because there's a lot of anger out there. And you don't want to escalate the situation by pushing back too hard and not listening and not showing empathy for what for what your residents are saying. Mayor Burnett. I'll just try to answer quickly so we can get to as many questions as possible. Mayor Holt gave a thorough answer. The, the committee that I formed that just reported out yesterday had six principles. And your question, uh, Mr. Modell, I think is, is on point. Um, most of the people, in fact, I haven't met but maybe one or two mayors who ascribe to the defund the police. And when you drill down into defund the police, it's more about reallocating money to, to, to counselors and, and therapists and trying to, uh, to understand how we use the police in terms of every call uh, versus uh, specific calls and so forth. So I think most people understand the importance that everything starts with feeling safe in your community. Six principles that, by the way, on my, my committee that had three mayors, we also had three police chiefs because the perspective of the police is critically important in order to put something forward. Redefining the role of local police and public safety, trust and legitimacy, sanctity of life, equality and due process, community and transparency. Those are the things that I think every officer uh, who swears an oath probably doesn't take issue with. How they ascribe and how they act those out and the support they get, a lot of this comes down to funding, a lot of this comes down to the support that we as mayors are providing or communities are providing their police departments are really critical to this discussion. And so uh, I don't, you know, I, I know that the attention, again, uh, in this group, we for, sort of focus on the middle. A lot of the attention gets played to, you know, way over to the right or way over to the left. But the majority of America, I think, understands that there has to be a, uh, an understanding and a way forward that involves compromise. And frankly, right now, the challenge for every police police officer is every single police officer is representing every single other officer in America. That's what you saw happen uh, in uh, in Minneapolis. Every other officer was painted with that with that brush. And that's what we have to be careful of. And that's why I think the work that we're doing as mayors is really critical. Thank you. And so we're honored to have Representative Kendra Horn. And so she's going to jump to the front of the line on questions. So take it away, Representative Horn. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate that, Glenn. And uh, I, I want to touch on, I want to take a step back to touch on something that uh, that Mayor Holt, that, that David talked about. Uh, and, and it's with respect to where these things intersect. Uh, it strikes me that one of the challenges we have in getting things across the finish line and moving policy forward uh, that mayors often are able to do more closer to the, because they're closer to the circumstances. But, uh, but, uh, but, but the other thing, Mayor Barnett, that you just mentioned is that most people are closer to the middle. I think that is the experience. And one of the things that we're working on here uh, and talking about these issues uh, that often get framed, and it's not just issues around the police, but these other systemic issues as either a just uh, issue of the heart uh, or how we feel about people uh, or it's, or it's uh, an economic impact. But I think there's both. Um, and, and David, I would love it if you could speak to um, the evolution of, 
of, of the MAPS program, because I think that's one of the things that we've seen in Oklahoma and Oklahoma City, that there is a component to all of this, that the strength of our uh, economic, uh, our economies, our job opportunities um, is, is absolutely intertwined with the impact on our communities and individuals. And I think that the MAPS program is an important example of that and what was initially invested in and what is uh, what it looks like now. And I just wondered if you'd speak to that. Sure, thank you. And and this will confirm Mayor Barnett's suspicion that everyone in Oklahoma City is obsessed with talking about MAPS because he's certainly heard it. Uh, he's heard it from me and Mayor Cornett through the years. Um, but we're it's for good reason because it really is an amazing success story. About 25 years ago, our city uh, residents approved a one cent temporary sales tax uh, to build stuff we didn't have. And in, in that case, back in 1993, it was we lacked all the cultural and entertainment amenities of a large American city. We, we built a sports arena and a ballpark and a canal downtown and you know, all the kind of fun things that, that we lacked. And it's made a huge difference. MAPS for kids was MAPS 2. It was another one cent temporary sales tax approved by the voters in 2001, and it fixed up our school buildings. And then MAPS 3 built uh, a new convention center, a new 70-acre urban park downtown, a downtown streetcar, um, and kind of returned to the model of MAPS 1. But as uh, Representative Horn just referred to, there's been an evolution in MAPS 4, which I think is worth mentioning here. I think it's a precursor to the issues that we're raising right now uh, in, our, in our country. I, I feel like we were a little ahead of that in our investments with MAPS 4. We um, had this dialogue with the community over the course of 2019 as we had the opportunity to put another initiative before them. Uh, and that happened in December. And it ultimately was an eight year sales tax that's gonna raise about a billion dollars. And again, in our system here in Oklahoma, we have to put these before the voters. So it's, it's not something that the council just votes on. And we, we have to take it to an election. It's a big campaign. It's a big conversation that, that consumes the community. And so that all happened uh, in December. And this MAPS, MAPS 4, it's like a movie sequel. You know, we, we, we number them now. It's MAPS 4 includes 16 projects um, that are that are a little bit different. There's a couple things in there that are like previous maps. There's a an upgrade to our arena. There's a new uh, arena over at the state fairgrounds. I mean, there's a few things, but about seven hundred million dollars of the billion dollars went to things that are far more focused on our human needs and our neighborhood needs uh, in our city. And so, as an example, we've got money for parks to, to upgrade every neighborhood park in our city. We have $110 million for youth centers, which we think is something um, that we haven't invested in a long time and will pay dividends for the young people of our city. We've got money for senior wellness centers. We have money for new mental health crisis centers in our city. That's not something that in Oklahoma at the municipal level we really deal with a lot. That's more of a state function, but um, there are some needs in our city that aren't being met and we wanted to invest in those. We have $38 million for a family justice center. That's um, a concept that uh, serves uh, victims of domestic violence primarily. We have uh, $90 million for transit. Somebody mentioned earlier, you know, that we're one of the largest cities in the United States. We struggle with transit as a result, and this is an investment in that. We have another $90 million for sidewalks and bike lanes. Um, we have $50 million for homeless housing. Uh, we have a new animal shelter. 
We have uh, $17 million for a diversion hub. This is a facility to divert people away from the criminal justice system. I mean, this is, I, I joke, this wasn't a campaign slogan, but uh, this was like the third most popular project. And I, I said, maybe we should call it Maps for Criminals, you know? And I thought, I mean, that's heartless, but I mean, the reality is that's what it is. And the fact that that was so popular in this process really showed where the people of Oklahoma City are, that they are getting a lot more empathetic um, for the challenges faced by people even who have been arrested for committing a crime. And I think that's a, really a remarkable testament to the way that Oklahoma City has evolved on these issues. We've had major efforts in criminal justice reform at the local level, led by people um, who have, you know, not necessarily the leaders you would have expected, but who have really uh, had eye-opening experiences that have given them an understanding that um, much like I said earlier, that your destiny is often, you know, preordained by where you grew up and the, the environment you were brought into. And so um, it's, it's not a, a waste of our resources to try and reinvest in you through a diversion hub to give you the job training, mental health and substance abuse services that you need, um, that, that really you need because of things that you, choices you didn't really make. I mean, they may feel like choices, but in fact, they were um, you know, environmental uh, realities thrust upon you because of where you grew up. So that's one of the projects I'm most excited about because it will really change lives. It's the smallest dollar amount of MAPS for it, $17 million, but it's such a sea change from the kind of uh, investments that we've made in the past. We also have um, $20 million for a civil rights center, and we're really excited about that as well, and it will honor our civil rights history. I saw some, I heard somebody jumping in, so let me, let me cut off there, but MAPS is a really interesting story, and we could talk about it for hours, and I would be happy to at another time, but thank you. So, Mayor Holt, thank you so much, and part of our thing we try to do, because people, everyone has, has time limits, is end on time, but with that, I just want to thank both mayors. I'll turn it over to Mayor Barnett, and honestly, I think there's enormous demand for us to talk to mayors, because you guys have a different sort of content than anyone we talk to. So, Mayor Barnett, you have the last word. You know, I, I guess I, I'm a, a relentless optimist. I think I said that once. And while there's so much to be concerned about or depressed about, I think if you look at um, what's happening in America's cities, there is room for hope. Um, you see, even despite these challenging times, new businesses emerging, businesses finding new ways to reach their customers. You see new conversations in the community, you see new connections among people in the community. That's the American spirit. And I think it's really alive and well. Um, uh, Partisanship is 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 the is the enemy. <laughs> it's the disease, and I think beautiful bipartisanship is really uh, on the endangered species list, and really only found in in America's city halls. So, uh, support your local government. Uh, do what you can do to to get involved as business leaders. Keep doing what you're doing, creating jobs. Uh, you do what we can't. I'm a small government guy. Uh, we should stay out of your way and let you do what you can do. And 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 what you're providing is fantastic. Thank you for thank you for creating a safe middle. For those of us in the political arena, uh, to be able to have conversations and to be able to uh, uh, to communicate, this is critically important. Don't ever tire. Don't ever get bored. Don't ever lose hope, because this is where the future of America is. Uh, it's been my honor to be with you here today. Thank you for uh, plugging into mayors. Invite more back in the future. You won't be disappointed. It's 4:59. Mayors like to be on time. God bless you. Thank you. Mayor Holt explains that Oklahoma City began to experience COVID-19 rather late in comparison to other cities and states, and that allowed for a faster and stricter response early on that explains their lower case numbers. 
Mayor Barnett laments the reality that whether you wear a mask or not seems to be an advertisement for your political allegiances. Both he and Mayor Holt claim that politics at the local level does not have the same partisanship, and they wish that attitude was more often embraced in D.C. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 